Natalie, do you ever just find yourself in a rut where you're just completely obsessed with one thing for a long time and you just, that's all you're focused on? Google searches, oh, that's- listening to whatever you can find, anything you can find about this one thing, music related, of course. You just totally obsessed. Well, I was going to say that's kind of my MO in life in general. I get really obsessed with topics or crafts and absolutely music and just spend possibly weeks going down the rabbit hole. You know, if the content is there with an artist, I need to know everything about them. I need to hear everything they've done. Yeah, it can get pretty intense. Me too. Me too. And I have a real huge obsession right now with the Lemonheads. Ooh, blast from the past. (laughs) Well, I've been like, and you know, we've talked about this in the record store a lot lately, but I've been very obsessed, re-obsessed with the 90s again lately because of my stream, I think, my like 90s stream on Twitch. And it's just forcing me to revisit things in a different light now as an adult and kind of re-listening to older songs in a different light as well. So I feel like now I'm identifying with certain things that I wasn't identifying with before when I listened to them. Do you do that? Oh, that makes sense. I mean, the 90s were pretty rad. I would get be obsessed with the 90s anytime. So much was happening that I think we can appreciate now as adults. There was so much, so much change and like these new subcultures and these experimental musical styles and fashion styles. There was so much happening culturally. Yeah. Um, that we, I think, took for granted living in it. Yeah. And it's cool to look back now. Well, and I think I was just so young and naive that the music I was taking, not at face value, because as a teen in the 90s, we all have feelings when we're teenagers, and they are on, you know, hormones, everything raging. So the emotions are high (laughs) when you're a teenager. Right. So, but now not having those same, like, volatile emotions, crushes and things like that. Some of these deeper cut songs I feel are very underrated. Yeah, it's really interesting to sort of step back and look. Yeah. And now, you know, being a few, a couple of decades out, we can look back and have more context. We've lived more life. We can go back and like appreciate, you know, some of the the emotion of the time and all of that energy that was feeding all of this art. So Yeah, yeah. So I think it's time that we are update our Album of the Month shelf. And if you're new to this store, our Album of the Month club is kind of like a book club. We, we both choose an album and we listen to it and kind of review it and talk about it and just talk about the themes or um, anything that pops up that, that is worth uh, discussion. So yeah, I know because of my obsession right now with the Lemonheads in the 90s, I actually really wanted to explore Evan Dando's solo album because I honestly had never listened to it before. Um, and I thought that would be kind of a, a fun, fun exercise. Oh yeah, yeah, that's a good one. Tell us which one you picked. Well, there's lots of really cool stuff to listen to these days, but one album has completely stolen my attention, and that is Aruj Aftab and her third album, Vulture Prince. Yes, sweet. It was really good. Both of them, I think, were really good. I enjoyed listening to both yeah. of these albums 
throughout. But should we start with, which one should we start with, do you think? Let's do the lemon heads action. Yeah, nice, nice. Yeah, so completely obsessed, like I said. I am thoroughly an Evan Dando fan right now. Yes, he is a beautiful man, has always been, but that I guess Let's is start what, with the important things first. Right? <laughs> His mom was a model, though, so I guess that's um, why he looks the way he looks. This album, Baby I'm Bored, from 2003, is the first album he's put out uh, since 1996, which is the Lemonheads album think car button cloth and so it's been a really long time since he's released something and it's not unlike the lemon heads by any means a lot of music in the 90s has this there's a lot of music that's like i don't care slacker just totally random lyrics but then a lot of songs in the 90s are kind of a, a yearning but sound happy in love, yearning, wanting someone, but not getting them, but happy sounding song. For example, the Cardigans, Love Fool. Absolutely. So happy sounding, right? But love me, love me, say that you love me. Yeah, it's the, the lyrics are really heavy, but they, they frame it in this sort of like wispy airy kind of sound yeah it just floats along yeah (laughs) or another one teenage fan club what you do to me Mm. Mm -hmm. or matthew sweet girlfriend so yeah with the lemon heads there were a lot of songs that were like that into your arms which is actually a cover which I just learned that and I was, my mind was blown. Or if I could talk. If I could talk, I'd tell you. If I could smile, I'd let you know, which I think is actually a song about being just like too fucked up on drugs. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> you can make that song about being too nervous or, or afraid to talk to the person that maybe you are interested in. I don't know. At least that, that was my interpretation when I, when I first listened to it. And so that's kind of how I, I listen to it now. Rudderless. A ship without a rudder is like a ship without a rudder. That song to me, now, we're, now I'm like reviewing the Lemonheads. But all this to say, this album still has that, I think, but in a more kind of sad, more sad, Lane's more sad than those 90s pop songs. Quick question. Yeah. Do you notice that a lot of the songs that we loved in our youth, like when we go back and revisit them now, we realize that they were actually about drugs? I feel like that's a common theme. Yeah, what the heck? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Um, It's really true. It is weird that you can sort of twist a song about drugs and make it about love too. So many of them. Yeah, Because you're really just getting your brain to squirt different kinds of chemicals around. Yeah. Love buzz. Maybe that's why it's still kind of relatable. Yeah, definitely. And this is one thing that I was wanting to avoid with us talking about this album in particular. 
is the drug use because Evan Dando is so known for his just unapologetic slacker drug. Really? I didn't know that. Aesthetic, I guess. Oh, he has always been like very self-deprecating, doing drugs, knowing that he shouldn't be, but unapologetic for it. He he just like he likes doing drugs and <laughs> he's always just been kind of a mess. This album is is kind of a like alt country western in a way. And I think it's extremely underrated. Yeah. What did you think about it when you listened to it? It's interesting that you you say western because I did get a lot of lonely cowboy vibes yeah. from a lot of the songs. Yeah. <laughs> so this I mean, this was a cool change of pace for me because I only know the Lemonheads from their version of Mrs. Robinson. And then that the cover of that Suzanne Vega song yes, they did. Luca. Um, Luca, yes. Yes, I love that one. So I didn't know a lot about Evan Dando. Um, but this this album was interesting. It got better for me as it went on, you know? Yeah. I think it, it kind of lingered in this mid-tempo space early on. And I don't know, I felt a little sleepy with it, but I started to gravitate toward the peppier tracks that came, like Waking Up, I really like. looks like you. He has some really catchy hooks in there. It looks like you is super catchy. All my life is catchy. That's stuck in my head like all day. Yeah. All my life thought I needed all the things I didn't need at all. Um, yeah, some, some good melodic moments in there for sure. You know, it's really wild. I mean, this is not wild at all, but this was produced by John Bryan, who, you know, actually Seth, uh, I can't wait to talk to Seth about this because he is a John Bryan stan and he used to always say, fuck you, John, John Bryan, because everything John Bryan touched is perfect, pretty much. And for <laughs> this album to go so under the radar for me and to now hear it and, and know that John Bryan touched it and I love this album so much. I'm sad that I'm just now finding out about it. I guess in 2003, that was the sort of height of electro dance post-punk thing that was happening, the strokes and all of that, um, Interpol. So I think this one just sort of went under the radar for me. But it's crazy having John Bryan produced it and he gets songwriting credits on a bunch of these songs. I think Evan Dando is a, completely underrated, overlo- often overlooked amazing songwriter in our time. I really do. But so some history on this album. So he was living in New York at the time. Again, this album came out in 2003. Living in New York, 2001, 9-11 happens. He lives two blocks away from the towers. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. He said their whole building start to shake. He and his wife, Elizabeth Moses, thought if we ever thought we were about to die in our life, this is it. This is the time we're about to die. Their entire building is shaking. I think they go out on the roof to see what happens or something like that. And the second tower gets hit while they're on the roof, or he is at least. I've read in an interview. I don't know if that's, you know, his interviews are crazy, so I'm... Another thing is I just don't know which part of the details are true or not, or is he just making stuff up? It sounds like he was on top of the 
roof of his building two blocks away from when the towers hit and saw the second one get hit. And it seems like after that, like at first he's totally numb from everything and seeing that. But I know, you know, we all were impacted by that, even if we didn't live in New York at the time. Absolutely. But if you're living in New York, it it was a totally different experience. But for him to be right there too, I can't imagine how that may have impacted him on a mental level, emotional level. And so it sounds like he was pretty numb to things. And then in Mm. 2002, he was watching a movie and he was, I think it was um, The Man Who Wasn't There and had fallen asleep. Towards the end, there was this music in the credits, like a piano piece. And he had this like oral hallucination and he woke up and all of a sudden just like completely violently crying, sobbing, screaming, just having this total breakdown and thought about that plane crash. And he was like, oh my God, he was, you know, so blase about it before. And then all of a sudden he just lost it. And I think that experience must have had some major impact on him because I I think he sobered up for this album. I think that was part of the reason John Bryan did work with him on this. Although I'm I'm sure John Bryan recognizes his level of talent for songwriting because I don't think he would just, just because you're sober and you're Evan Dando, like, sure, fine, I'll work with you. I'm John Bryan, whatever. John Bryan's worked with so many amazing songwriters. Fiona Apple, for example, she's such an amazing songwriter. Oh, yeah. But yeah, so John Bryan works on this. And I think a lot of the themes that I noticed in the song is, uh, or in this album is that sort of coming to terms with his life. Did you get any of that? I think, well, I'm just thinking about, you know, listening to the album cold and not really knowing about this person and hearing this historical context and hearing you describe him as the sort of moody drug connoisseur, yeah. you know. Uh, very self-deprecating. It makes sense now, the cadence of the whole album. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I'm going to have to go back, go back and listen to it again. But I agree with you about his songwriting skill. Like even that stood out to me clearly. He's got a song on the album called Why Do You Do This To Yourself? And it's not even two minutes long. You stayed awake for 14 days And then you slept a week why do you do this to yourself? But I think it resonates <laughs> with me because I, it, it, he manages to tell this entire story in just a couple of stanzas, right? I'm, I'm really big on setting boundaries with people. And so here he is like showing concern, trying to sympathize and understand. And then at the end, he's like, you'll stay up again, I'm sure. I won't be losing sleep, you know, just about detaching yourself from the toxicity and these things won't change. And it's just kind of, kind of this tragic acceptance, you know? Yeah. I almost feel like it's totally about himself. Yeah. It's like, why did you go on a drug bender for 14 days? And why did you get super drunk out on the fire escape? Why do you keep doing this to yourself? Uh, And that, that's even, that makes it even more mind blowing too. Like, how do you separate yourself from your own toxicity? Refusing any kind of help. You're not hurting no one else. Right. Yeah, and on top of that, he's he lives this extremely privileged life. His dad was a lawyer and has this massive property in Massachusetts. He lives in Martha's Vineyard, 
by himself. But I, I don't know if where he lives is like on his dad's property or what. But yeah, having this sort of very privileged life and kind of being a rich kid. All the guys from Lemonheads, uh, when they first started out, were these super privileged punks, if you want to call them punks. I don't even think that they were very punk. Although they were definitely in that scene and a lot of... They were the band's band in the 90s, you know, like Dinosaur Jr. took them on tour before mm-hmm. even had a, a full album. I think they just started with an EP that had like two songs on it. Maybe it was like five minutes long or something. I don't know the, the extreme details. So the original lineup included Evan, who was the son of a lawyer and a model, Jesse Peretz, the son of a longtime editor-in-chief of The New Republic, and he was also film and director for shows like Girls, and then Ben Daly, who graduated from Harvard. So they were like the bougiest punk band ever. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, you know, he had all these privileges, looks, wealth, connections, but I think he still captured a lot of this sort of... Um, in the 90s, especially that sort of I don't care attitude, I think he really embodied it a little bit. But he also just really loves music, and I, th- I think that's great. So some of the songs on here, Royston Langdon co-wrote that song, Waking Up. Royston Langdon is the frontman from Space Hog. Oh, Remember really? that song in the meantime? Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then Ben Lee, who also kind of had some fame in the 90s but at this point in time in the early 2000s was really kind of blowing up but they had a punk band called noise addict and they wrote a song about evan nando actually called i wish i was him but he <laughs> wrote the song hard drive on this album this the town i'm living in this is the hard drive this is the ocean which is i think one of my favorite songs on the album And it really just highlights the sort of everyday mundane pieces of life. It says, have you ever felt yourself in motion? But it also says, these are the people that I love. These are the eyes that look above. This is the town I'm living in. This is the hard drive. These are special, beautiful, everyday kind of things. I just think it's such a good song. Oh, that paints a nice picture. Right? I like that. Yeah. The song, the same thing you thought hard about is the same part I can't live without. There's a line that says, Mm -hmm. I can't believe how far I slipped, but secretly I'm glad I did. I can't believe how far I slipped. Secretly I'm glad I did. It's like he's he's just realizing, you know, this is, I went so far down this terrible hole. But I'm glad I did because that's kind of who, it's just like who I am. Unapologetic. Again, I love that about him. Yeah, just acceptance. Yeah. And then the last song I'll talk about is In the Grass All Wine Colored. I'm in the grass all wine colored, wine colored grass. I'm in the grass all wine colored. It's such a short song it's two lines repeated but it's so simple and beautiful that's really all I can say about it I don't know I just think that he's incredibly charming and this record is underrated it's 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 really good it's just a really good record (laughs) 
highly recommend. Yeah. It's clearly got some big 90s heavy hitter energy in it, especially with those collaborators you mentioned that I wasn't aware of. I think I'm going to listen to it again. Now that you've set the mood, I'm going to go back. But there were definitely some standout songs that caught me on first listen. Did you listen to the deluxe version of the album? There's like a whole second disc. Yeah. There's a whole other second thing, even an alternative version of Shots Fired with Liv Tyler singing on it. I did like her feature on that. Yeah, good call out. It it does sound like a lot of people may have missed out on that one, so. Yeah. It's good to bring it back. Yeah, the 90s is sort of having this resurgence as well. If any listeners in the store are kind of revisiting 90s music, I, I highly recommend checking out this 2003 often overlooked solo album by Evan Nando. I mean, he is the Lemonheads, which is why I think you only see this one as a solo release. I mean, he has a couple singles that he released by himself, but this is his only full-length solo album. But yeah, he's also the king of covers and his most recent two albums, Varshans 1, Varshans 2, are all covers, and, and they're great. He, he nails it, I think. He does a really good job of covers. So, All right, should we take a break and then talk about Aruj Aftab? Yeah, let's do it. We're back from our little break, and now we're going to talk about Aruj Aftab, Vulture Prince. Yay. I'm so excited about Natalie's this. Natalie's pick. Yes. Listen up, customers. Do we have a megaphone? We need to invest in a megaphone. <laughs> but Aruj Aftab is my current musical obsession. She's, she's just fascinating to me. This is her third album, actually, Vulture Prince. Uh, she's a Pakistani artist based in Brooklyn, and recently a Grammy nominee for Best New Artist and Best Global Music Performance. Well-deserved. Um, yeah. And yeah, so she's, she's most known for merging Sufi poetry, specifically a, a form of poetry called guzzles, that's G-H-A-Z-A-L, which are basically like these love poems, like a melancholic love poem about the longing one feels when separated from their beloved, or like when that love is unrequited or unattainable for some reason. And, you know, traditionally, the beloved is God, of course, but it can also be an earthly love. So she has masterfully merged this with just a whole range of different genres, um, from contemporary jazz to even electronic trance and ambient music. Somewhere online, somebody coined uh, her style of music as neo-Sufi, which I think is pretty great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What did you think about this album? I loved it. I loved it so much, and I went down a rabbit hole, like really diving into her, her, like her, her story. What's her story, you know? Um, And a a lot of the songs I was really diving into because a lot of them are, you know, not in English. So I wanted to know what, what are they? What do they mean? Where does this come from? They're obviously very um, emotional, it seems like. Oh yeah. You can tell by the way that she's singing them how powerful emotionally these songs are. And yeah, I, I loved it so much. Yeah. Can I tell you what it reminded me of yeah. first thing? When I first heard it, it gave me this sort of, when I first heard Rosalia. Oh, yeah. How she would that. sing in this classical Spanish style. 
bringing this old traditional classical Spanish vibe into modernity, this this modern style of sort of electronic music, I guess, with her El Mal Querer album in 2018. <laughs> It really reminded me of that. That's kind of a cool parallel because something about both of those artists, you know, the, the cultural context that they, they bring to the stage, but also there's something about the way they record. It feels like their voices are just right in your ear. It's very oh intimate. Oh my gosh, right? Do you know what yes. I mean? Yes. Like a, like a halo of their voices like over you're your in head. a womb, yeah, and their voices are just yes. reverberating. That's that's interesting because I feel the same way about um, Rosalia, her music as well. But yeah, yeah. I, it's it's funny you say that because that's what's so interesting about this album for me is that how she just naturally sucks you in, like and pulls you into her orbit. And like obviously, I don't understand Urdu. <laughs> you know, I did go right. back and read a lot of the translations of the lyrics, and they're just absolutely gorgeous. But you know, you my are. first listen, I had no clue what she was saying, and yet it was just this really engaging, calming, almost meditative, dark emotional experience. And not dark in a in a bad way, but just like you've descended down into some deep, the depths of your being and you're just sitting yeah. quietly, you know? It was yes, very, very definitely. impactful. Uh, so I read, because I went down this like rabbit hole <laughs> being obsessed. Uh, thank you for recommending this album, by the way. Yeah, I, I went down this huge rabbit hole and I found out that she had originally wanted it to sound like something totally different and then experienced a tragic loss. Yeah, she wanted a dance album. Yeah. <laughs> something danceable, which is so, so like completely the opposite of what it ended up being. But right, she lost her, her younger brother and also a close friend of hers. Yeah. And that just completely shifted the entire tone of the album. And I think it colored it with even more of that melancholic longing for your beloved. Yeah, and you can hear it and you For can sure. feel it yourself. Yeah. One of the songs was actually a poem written by this friend that passed away and it kind of just found its way onto the album, which I thought was yes. sweet. I love that. And I read, you know, she said she always wanted to collaborate, but it's like they did it anyway. Yeah. You know, it gave me the chills when I read that. I was like, wow, that's, they, they both always wanted to collaborate and it's, it's sad that it, it didn't happen. She ran out of time, but mm. still made it happen. Yeah. It's interesting how we've picked these two albums because I think they're kind of similar um, because they, there's a, a theme of acceptance, right? Because with Aruja's music, it's not about like sorrow or wallowing in the grief as much as it's about accepting that grief and giving it space to just exist. You know? Yeah, that's true. I was trying to find a connection between the two albums because a few times Seth and I did these album of the months, it, they weirdly overlapped. And so mm -hmm. I was intentionally looking for some sort of overlap between these two. And I wasn't really seeing the obvious standout, but I think you're totally right. It's this sort of self-reflection, mm -hmm. sitting in the moment of, kind of looking at everything around you and things that you've experienced and accepting it. I think I think you hit the 
the nail on the head with that with yeah. that description for sure. I love how all of her influences and all of her the things that she likes and just everything sort of came together on this album, Vulture Prince. Sounds like she studied jazz at Berkeley and Berkeley School of Music, not the other Berkeley. Studied jazz. She is familiar with Northern classical music. Her own tastes are that of like ambient and minimal, i.e. Terrier Eiley, et cetera, et cetera. And then, yeah, then her like Pakistani background as well. Everything sort of comes together into this one album. But no, I need to listen to that ambient album because now, especially knowing her background, I didn't know that she had an ambient album, so I want to check it out for sure. But yeah, this album, I love how everything sort of melds together all of the different sounds and cultures. Yeah, so I, I read an interesting little anecdote about how she started her career. It really didn't seem like she didn't really have a path to a music career um, when she was growing up, and she was really distraught about this. But she was also very bold and assertive. And I guess, like, the most popular Pakistani singer, she just knocked on this woman's door and demanded a vocal practice with her and just kind of just force her way into it. And she found a way. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting how she made it all the way to Berkeley and flourished. And now she's giving us this incredible music. Yeah. um, I mean, when you are passionate about determination and it's like meant to be like all of the, all of the pieces fall into place and the universe conspires in your favor. It's, it's, it's cool to see stories like that. And she mentions how she's not classically trained, but I watched some live videos of her performing and she's so good live. I mean, it almost seems that she she makes it look easy. It's it just comes out it's of natural. her. It's natural. It's clearly natural. Yeah. There's nothing contrived about it. She's not trying to like put on a performance. She's just she just stands there and delivers. And her voice is just so beautiful and warm and it's got such like fuzzy textures. I don't know. Again, it's like being yeah. wrapped up in this yeah. room and her voice is just right in your ear. It's it's really magical. Yeah. My favorite track. My favorite track on the album is Last Night. Last night my beloved was like the moon so beautiful and I Me learned too. that that's actually a session from her very first album, which I think is called Bird Underwater. Yeah. So it's an it's an older song that she brought back for this album. And it like starts off with this mellow reggae swing. It's real chill. She's singing this phrase in English over and over again. Last night, my beloved was like the moon, so beautiful. And you kind of get lost in the trance of this. And then somewhere like halfway into it, it shifts to this minor key passage uh-huh. and she returns to the Urdu and it's just so, it's just so powerful how it just shocks you and swallows you up into this, you know, new sonic experience. Yeah, I love that song that so much. Was, that was my favorite track on there as well. And it's a roomy poem apparently, but I read this passage in an interview from composer.com and she says so in that song like you said last night my beloved was like the moon so beautiful over and over and she said she was blown away by 
um, how such a straightforward set of words could be so powerful. When I tell you I was listening to this song and I was like, whoa, I was so impacted by just that line first hearing this Mm -hmm. song. And I was like, this is obviously going to be my favorite. Um, She said, the moon is this gentle, luminescent energy and it almost represents this transcendent feeling. It's an ethereal force and super intimate and romantic on so many levels. The beauty of how Rumi wrote that and encompassed so many of those things in a very simple line spoke to me. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's ah. so great. I had chills. And I love I love it. that she sings it a few times over and over again just to give it a chance to sink in. I think like one of the pitfalls of modern life is that we've gotten so used to just getting tidbits of information on the surface level. We Google this, we, we, we don't even read and take the time to really comprehend or do any critical thinking. We just want that tidbit that we're looking for. And so to have someone give you this phrase and, and feed it to you a few times over gives you a chance to really contemplate. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's, it's cool that you're saying this because sort of after that track, I started to think that the album started to feel a little one note, kind of repetitive throughout, but she actually addresses this. She said that a lot of modern music is too busy, mm. cramming so many things down your throat, which is a little bit what you're saying, right? And she, instead of having someone maybe think about this album as being repetitive in theme or kind of one note, challenges you to think about why it's not something else, like to just stay with that. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. She's challenging this like perception, giving this something simple like too boring, lack of ideas, repetitive, blah, 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 challenging you to think of it as something more simple and like beautiful. I think that's really cool. Yeah, it's kind of an indictment on our capacity for attention, right? You know? And again, it's yeah. that it's that it's like a meditation. It's like a prayer. It just you just sink down into it and you stay on this wavelength until it's really reverberating. I need that. Soak it up. Yeah. Soak it up. Well, yeah. I can't I can't wait to hear what her dance album's gonna sound like. I know. That I'm actually really interested to hear a dance album from her. <laughs> Absolutely. But, you know, Beyonce kind of said the same thing. I think it was Beyonce that said this. No one listens to full albums anymore. It's just cranking out single after single, waiting for the hype. Getting yeah. the hype. The TikTok dance. It burns out. There's <laughs> another one. The hype. It burns out. And no one really sits and listens to a full album anymore or really appreciates a full album. And I think... That's definitely true. That this uh, Arouge album, kind of, you do sit and listen to the whole thing because you want to know what's next, what's next, what's next. Yeah. She has a Tiny Desk concert too. That's, that's pretty fabulous. It's Ooh. just very stripped down. Her with a four piece, violin, harp. Uh, bass and guitar and it's it's lovely can we talk about the instrumentation i was gonna say i love that you chose an album that's so harp heavy yeah that's my vibe these days <laughs> i'm loving the vibe. harp <laughs> yeah that first, first track, song out the gate oh yeah, right? yeah. just beautiful harp passages it's gorgeous So fun fact about this album, there is, she's selling a perfume to accompany the album. 
and you can find it on her Bandcamp. Last time I checked, it was sold out, so it, I guess what? it's fabulous. I don't know. But I read in an interview that she wanted a fragrance to match the major themes of the album. I think this is from Pitchfork, actually. Um, and the themes are 1990s Lahore, which is where she's from, huge oak trees, seasonal fruit, fire worship, empty space, and purple rain. Purple rain. I know. <laughs> what a random connection. <laughs> but... I think it's great. I want a perfume that smells like purple rain. I would just, what does purple rain smell like? I wonder what kind of cologne Prince wore. That's a little off topic, but I need to Google that later. I've heard he smells amazing, and I have no doubt. I have no doubt in my mind either that he must be smelling so fine. <laughs> that is so funny. That's cool. I didn't find yeah. that. That's, that's really cool. I'm so very interested. I wonder how it I wonder how it would alter the listening experience to like have it in a diffuser. I'll have to try that out. I'll get back Ooh. to you. The, and also the um title, Vulture Prince. We've mentioned that she's lost some people. A vulture is a bird of prey which picks on the dead. And how does Prince tie into that? Her brother, maybe? The the last song, there are these sort of reverby, echoey drum sounds. They sound kind of heavy, like heavy in weight. Mm -hmm. And I think they're so they're so cool. And also that same song has these sort of uh, same echoey, almost like electronic harp sounds. I don't know yeah. if they were uh, like a synth sound or like a like an electronic harp or something. But it repeats throughout and it gives this sort of, if, if to me felt like, like a reflecting pond or a mirror, sort of a shimmery ripple. Yeah, very subtle. It might have been a harp. I mean, she talks a lot about wanting to find harp and presenting it in a different way. She talks about challenging instrument instrumentalists to use their instruments in unexpected ways. And she specifically cited heavy metal harp for this project. So they could have been doing all kinds of um, preparations and, and fun effects with the harp on this album. Yeah. Well, that is my album of the month by far. I'm going to put it up here right next to the cash register so all the customers can see it. Hopefully I, I can uh, woo them into trying it out. Amazing, amazing mm -hmm. choice. I loved it so much. Thank you for, for recommending that. Yeah, I think we have two really solid albums that explore themes of grief and reflection and acceptance. Isn't it funny how we kind of like landed on that yeah. <laughs> without knowing? Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, so what? So we should restock the employee recommendation shelf as well while we're out here on the floor, restocking things. Right um, do you have any recommendations for the shelf? You know, it took me a long time, but I recently got around to watching a documentary I've been really excited about, and that's um, the Sesame Street documentary. <gasps> have you seen this? It's on Ooh. HBO. No, and it is but I so want to amazing. It's so good. And it's just a really fascinating story of what can happen when a team of awesome creative people at the top of their game come together and the pieces fall into place and they make this amazing legacy that just like rocks the whole world and in a positive way. It's just such a, a feel-good story. It's crazy how I've remembered so many things from Sesame Street as a child exact moments of clips, you know, where the, there's the crayon thing, there's the 
girl taking the llama to the dentist. <laughs> the mm-hmm. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. That oh, the there's music. just so many. <laughs> we should have a whole conversation just about Sesame Street's impact on music. We should. That would be an excellent conversation to have in the store. The, and all the musical guests. Yeah. It's really, really good. You get to see uh, the great Jim Henson and Frank Oz, you know, get a glimpse of their awesome chemistry and the puppeteering. Um, and I just love their philosophy. They always, they always mention how they never wanted to talk down to children. And I thought that was really special. They wanted to level with children. And they even revisited the episode where um, Mr. Hooper, the guy at the, the paper stand, passed yeah. away. And they didn't dodge it. They didn't write in some silly plot point to, you know avoid it. They talked about death. And I remember that being a really big deal. So it's a, it's a fantastic documentary. It was emotional even. So check it out. What's streaming? Uh, HBO Max. HBO Max. Cool. You know, I was just going to recommend Evan Dando's Baby on Board because it has been so overlooked. I think that I was just going to say this should be my, my recommendation as well. But you know what? I think I'm going to switch it up and say related to your recommendation, if you haven't seen the Mr. Rogers documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is also an HBO documentary, uh, I highly recommend it. It's almost like they were trying to find something wrong with the guy and could not. Really? <laughs> but it's really sad. It just made me cry. And he was another Aww. one of the, another person and team of people who got together for the good of children and education and are making the world a better place. Yeah. I was also a big Mr. Rogers kid. Yeah, so many good messages. Is this the thing with, is it the Tom Hanks one, or is this like a, a proper documentary about the Pro- production of the show? Proper documentary. Okay. This one came out in uh, 2018. It's called Won't You Be My Neighbor. I will definitely watch that. So yeah, Sesame Street documentary, Mr. Rogers. Some serious throwbacks for the store today. <laughs> yeah, and they had a live we band lucky. in the studio. We were so lucky. We were we so We were lucky. fed such awesome TV as kids, yeah. Yeah, Saturday morning cartoons will never be the same. (laughs) Cool. Well, I guess it's time to lock up. Thanks for everyone hanging around, shopping in the store, and we'll catch you later. Bye, everybody. Record Store Society is hosted by Natalie White and Tara Davies. If you'd like to contact the show, visit our website at recordstoresociety.com. Or you can find us on all your favorite social media sites with the handle at Record Store Society.